There was a murder in central Ohio that many people still don't want to talk about. The man who committed that crime once sat on death row, but now he's on the run. His name is Lester Eubanks. Lester didn't tunnel out of prison or scale a stone wall. On a December morning in 1973, he and a small group of inmates were granted permission to walk outside prison walls. His handcuffs were taken off. He changed into civilian clothing, and he and three others were driven to a local mall. They were told they could wander the stores and were asked to return to a designated meeting spot. Hours later, all the inmates came back, except Lester Eubanks, and he hasn't been seen since. He had a full plan. The guy had a plan. I was just uh, astounded that this could actually happen. There were many years when it seemed like no one was even looking for Lester. But recently, his whereabouts have become the focus of the U.S. Marshal Service, the federal agents who track fugitives. The case is testing the marshals. Those nine lives are running out, and we're going to catch up with Lester. And is being urged on by those hurt most by Lester's crime. He's had enough free time. He confessed to the crime, and his time is up. I'm Sunny Hostin with ABC News. Over the past year, a team from the ABC News Investigative Unit joined the search for Lester Eubanks. They uncovered new leads, possible sightings, and at every turn found resistance from those who want Lester Eubanks to be forgotten. What they've uncovered is a case that's about more than murder. It's about family loyalty, a life on the run, and a first-hand look at how the U.S. Marshals are trying to solve one of the oldest fugitive cases in American history. Now, they may be closer than ever. From ABC News. Have you seen this man? Have you seen this man? I'm wondering if you have seen this man. Have you seen this man? Matthew Mosk, who is a senior investigative reporter at ABC, first started looking into this story last year. So Lester Eubanks grew up in Mansfield, Ohio, which is a town of 46,000 people. It sits almost exactly between Cleveland and Columbus, right in the middle. And that's sort of how the town feels, like a middle child. Not a small town, not a big city either. Over the past year, I went there more than a dozen times with our team, first with ABC's investigative chief, Cindy Galley, during the winter. Driving down um, what appears to be kind of one of the main streets, it is Americana, but it's also a little bit... Um, Times left it behind. Yeah, that's a good way of, of putting it. In the heart of the downtown is a central square, which is surrounded by the police station and the courthouse, but the first thing that you see and hear is the carousel. It's a throwback to an earlier time when local artisans built rides with their hands. It became the centerpiece of the town to honor craftsmanship and hard work, the things that defined Mansfield in the last century. But when you leave the vibrant square, you can see signs of deterioration throughout Mansfield. 
It's an area pockmarked with abandoned lots where General Motors and Westinghouse factories once stood. Just north of the railroad tracks that slice through the town is where Lester Eubanks murdered a child. Mary Ellen Diener was 14 years old at the time. She was a ninth grader at John Simpson Junior High School. In a school photo from that time, she's wearing a plaid top with a frilly collar, her mouth closed but in a wry grin as if the photographer had just told a goofy joke and she was trying not to roll her eyes. News reports would describe her as a good student who wanted to become a nun. Her sister... Myrtle Carter was older by four years. She always, she just always was giggling. You know, little girl, you know, always giggling and having fun and just being a little girl. All these years later, her memories of Mary Ellen are still vivid. Mary Ellen had to, at that time, they had home economics in school. And she had made some uh, sailor pants and she had made them. They were big bell-bottom legs and the gold buttons on the front. And I saw them. She said, I made them in a home bag. And we were the same size. And I'm like, oh, please let me wear those. Can I wear those? <laughs> can I borrow those? She said, yeah, you can borrow them. I made them. They were almost free, you know. And they were so cute. And I borrowed them, too, and wore them. They were so cute on me. <laughs> I remembered that, and that's the first She time. also remembers the night of the murder. It was November 1965, and Mary Ellen was out much later than usual. The belt had gone out on the family washing machine, and their laundry was piling up. So their mother asked Mary Ellen and another sister, Brenda, to run out to the laundromat. When the two of them got there, Mary Ellen realized she was short on coins, so she asked her sister to wait while she went in search of change. Brenda waited for Mary Ellen to come back, but as it got later and later, she realized something was wrong. She crossed the street to her grandmother's house. She uh, came over and told her that Mary Ellen had left to get change and hadn't come back yet. And uh, so my grandmother told her to stay at her house and... uh, not let anyone in, you know, and lock the door and stuff. And she'd go see if she could see, find out what's going on. Their grandmother tried to retrace Mary Ellen's steps, but when she turned a corner onto Mulberry Street, what she saw was a crowd gathered behind a vacant house. And in the middle of that crowd was Mary Ellen lying on the ground. She had been shot twice, and her skull was crushed. Police photos show her face down and her clothing torn, with her handbag lying a few feet away. Police had discovered Mary Ellen's body here. Yeah. And they knew she had made it to get the change because she had change in her hand still. Myrtle was back home when the news came. Knock at the door, and the detective came and told us that, you know, what had happened. And it was just so unreal. And, like, what time is it? When did it happen? You know, why was she not home? 
It was just a terrible, terrible night. I mean, it was just unreal. You, you know how it is you, if you've ever had someone pass away in your family, even if you're expecting it, but if you're not expecting it. But to have someone murdered, a child murdered, Mary Ellen was shot with a 32 caliber handgun. The following morning, police started going to shops around town to compile a list of people who had purchased a similar weapon. Diamond Hardware had just sold a 32, and when detectives heard the buyer's name, it jumped right out at them. Lester Eubanks. Lester was a native of Mansfield and the youngest son of a well-known preacher. He was a 22-year-old military man and a churchgoer, but he had already run afoul of the law. The night he spotted Mary Ellen through the glass pane of the laundromat, Lester was out on bail. Four months earlier, he'd been accused of entering an empty diner, pulling a waitress behind the counter and attempting to rape her. And before that, when he was just 16, he'd been cited in juvenile court for a sexual assault on a 12-year-old. So police in town knew his name, and they wanted to talk to him about his new pistol. Patrolmen arrested Lester on a Sunday as he walked home from church. He was driven to the Mansfield police station. None of the detectives who interrogated him there are around today, but John Arcudi later took over the case. He's retired now, but he still has a copy of the typed confession in his files, which he read to us. These are Lester's own words, telling detectives how he bumped into the young girl on the street and that she tried to strike him with a soda bottle. I blocked the lick with my left hand. She started to scream. I put my hand over her mouth and I drug her into the side yard of this red empty house. I tried to tell her to just wait a minute. I don't want you. I'm not bothering you. But she kept trying to scream. I pulled my gun out with my right hand, and I told her to be quiet. I pulled the trigger twice. I picked up the brick in the alley, and I went back to where the girl was lying. I hit her on the head with it a couple of times, and then I went back home. Lester never disputed that these were his words, but police wanted to be sure of that. Back in 1965... Policing was entirely different. You know, it was, it's almost like the dark ages. There was no tape recorders or anything. What detectives were taught uh, back in that era was uh, when you're taking a person's statement and you're typing it to intentionally make some mistakes that will force Lester or anybody, when they're reading over their statement, you're going to misspell words on purpose. Uh, you have him cross that word out, spell it correctly, and then put his initials. They were instructed to do that several times throughout the uh, a confession on all the pages. That indicates the suspect has seen that confession. He has read that confession. The initials for Lester Edward Eubanks, L-E-E, appear 11 times on the three-page document. 
and the words they're written next to were damning, and Arcudi believes convincing. As you look back on it now, do you have any questions about who did this crime? There is none. There is not anybody in the world read that case and that confession. Not a doubt. Arcudi told us what police came to believe actually happened the night of the murder. Lester peered into the laundromat, spotting Mary Ellen, and decided to follow her when she wandered out for change. They say Lester grabbed Mary Ellen as she tried to walk past him. He tried to rape her, but she resisted. So Lester dragged her behind a vacant house, shot her in the chest and abdomen, and left her for dead. She was only 14 years old, and he was in his 20s. Um, I would venture to say that any female who happened to be walking down that street that night and ran into Lester Eubanks would have been a victim. And it's just so happens that Mary Ellen was that victim that night. Lester returned to his apartment to hide his gun and change clothes for a night of dancing. When he went back out, he stopped behind the vacant house to check on Mary Ellen. And she was uh, moaning on the ground, asking for help. And his version of help was to pick up a paving brick and hit Mary Ellen in the head a couple of times, finally killing her. Yeah. What bothers you, even, what are we now, 50 years later, to hear about the details, to think about the details of this crime? Well, <clears throat> this veteran police detective started to choke up. He needed a minute. Remember seeing them photos. <sighs> to do the, the damage that he did and kill her is just... A human being doesn't do that. A monster does. The trial of Lester Eubanks took less than two weeks. He entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity never disputing that he had committed the murder, only that he wasn't fit enough to know right from wrong. The jury wasn't buying it. And neither did some of his family members, such as his brother, John Eubanks. Did your father say, or do you remember whether you felt that your brother was innocent or whether there was always an understanding that what happened had happened? My, my, my father knew that he was guilty, and... And, and and Lester knew that he was guilty, and um, my, my father was the type of person that uh, if you did what you did wrong, you're going to reap what you sow. On the last day of the trial, the prosecutor punctuated his case by pulling out the murder weapon, the brick, and slamming it down on the table in front of Lester. It took the jury just under 10 hours to find him guilty. Reports described him as stony-faced when the verdict was handed down. Six months after his arrest, Lester had been sentenced to death and taken to the Ohio State Penitentiary in Columbus to sit on death row. 
the right man was behind bars. Myrtle said that's where she thought this tragic chapter in her family's story would end. It was like watching a movie. You know, our movie, it happened that night. By that at next afternoon, he was caught. Six months later, he was the trial, the sentence, and he was gone. But Lester didn't stay gone. In each episode, we're going to chronicle two journeys, Lester's flight from prison and the effort by the U.S. Marshals to bring him back into custody. When we come back, we'll meet the U.S. Marshal who is in charge of that manhunt and get a look inside the search that's underway right now for Lester Eubanks. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. It's August 2019, and I'm about to speak with David Seiler. Hey, David, how are you? What's up, guys? He's a deputy U.S. Marshal and is leading the hunt for Lester. We're calling because we understand there's been, there's been some new leads, new developments. What's happening uh, out in California? What can you tell us? Well, um, about three weeks ago, we got a call from an individual who advised that there's a gentleman that fits the description of Lester Eubanks working in a, a car wash um, it, just outside of Sacramento. So our guys actually went and set up surveillance and uh, attempted to identify him. It took about seven days to actually see him uh, when he was working there. Um, our guys set up surveillance and were able to take some some photographs of the gentleman um they sent me pictures of photographs and looking at him his height weight eyes the ears as well um it looked like it could be our guy we were all kind of feeling like a little excited and skeptical at the same time this wasn't the first time deputy marshal seiler thought he'd gotten close to lester cases like this can generate hundreds of leads and every one of them has to be pursued. In this case, Siler is the one who follows them. He's sort of a unique figure at the U.S. Marshal Service. When I first met Siler, I was struck most by his normalness. He's a former Marine who's been in shootouts with convicts, but he doesn't carry himself like a tough guy. He seems almost bookish. He's about five foot eight wears black-rimmed glasses, and is instantly disarming. He once told me his best weapon on a manhunt is his ability to draw just about anyone into a friendship. The way he put it was that he tries to get people to love him. If they love him, they may just try and help him. Siler works on the top floor of a gleaming tower overlooking the Cuyahoga River. 
the Cleveland headquarters of the U.S. Marshal for the Northern District of Ohio. You have to pass through several locked and coded doors before a hallway leads into a large open room filled with cubicles and flanked by windowed offices. But Seiler is set apart, literally in a broom closet. So this is ideal. Um, just do the fact that I can, it's, um, lay everything out and start putting pieces together of this huge puzzle. And, um, and it's extremely quiet. Uh, the only thing is I don't see outside, but every once in a while you got to walk, <laughs> take a breath. Just to give you a sense of what this place looks like, Siler's desk is on the back wall. All around him are whiteboards and homemade posters that show the constellation of people that surround Lester Eubanks. There's a family tree with charts that show close contacts Lester had, including friends, relatives, and women, lots of women, who visited him in prison. It's quiet. and lets me you know, dive, you know, into uh, the nine lives of Lester Eubanks. Seiler is a specialist in an already specialized field. In one of the nation's only fugitive squads dedicated to cold cases, he handles the cases no one else has been able to crack. Four years ago, he was assigned to find Frank Freshwaters, a murderer who had escaped the Shawshank prison in 1959 and who had been on the run ever since. The details immediately invoked comparisons to the fictional Shawshank inmate, Andy Dufresne, who famously escapes through a sewer line. Seiler found Freshwaters in Florida. Our guys walked up to uh, Mr. Freshwaters. Um, all they had was a photo of him when he escaped prison 57 years earlier. They presented the photo to him and showed him the photo, and he said, I haven't seen that guy in a long time. Peter Elliott is Siler's boss. Elliott is a by-the-books G-man with a commanding presence, and the special squad in the U.S. Marshals Service handling cold cases, that was his idea. Well, I, it didn't feel like these old cases were getting paid attention to. And a lot of these cases, like the Eubanks case, just sat around for years and nothing was happening with them. What I wanted to do was start a cold case unit and put a person in charge like David Seiler, who was going to spend 100% of his time looking at these cold cases and making a difference. Their office is busy. Members of Elliott's team are constantly hustling, grabbing murder suspects, moving prisoners, assisting on national manhunts. So assigning somebody like Seiler exclusively to Lester's case, that's a big commitment. It's high pressure for Seiler, and he knows it. I don't let Monday come. There's no Monday. There's seven days a week. Like, you don't turn it off, no matter what. Um, these are one, this is one of those cases that you sleep with. So our team has been with him for the past year, and there have been promising new leads like that man the marshals were tracking at the car wash in California. At least it looked that way for a few days. So Siler and I met up at a shopping mall in downtown Cleveland. We were about to set out on a fresh round of interviews when the call came back. It's not our guy. Uh, how did it go down? Uh, the guys went in, and uh, you know, obviously we secured the perimeter, walked up to them, identified themselves, and... Um, the gentleman provided his uh, information, provided his information in reference to what he was uh, 
what he was doing where he lived. And sure enough, our guys actually uh, took a look at his fingerprints, compared them, make sure it's uh, him. And he was extremely cooperative and wasn't our guy. Another one Looked to scratch off like the it. list. Another one to scratch off the list. And some that we go over and over. Some that we've done almost probably over 100 times. Yeah. Do you finish that phone call and feel like at all disappointed? You know, finishing that phone call and not being able to say, we're getting on a plane in about 30 minutes to go to California is what? It, it, it is frustrating. Yeah. You know, it, it does get frustrating. But... You know, it's just something that we got to fight through, and it's a normal occurrence with these type of cases. But this isn't a normal case. That's something we've all come to realize as we learned about Lester's bizarre escape from one of Ohio's most notorious prisons. Retired Mansfield police officer John Arcudi told us that everyone was stunned when they heard Lester was loose. It defies logic, defies common sense and even more baffled when they learned how he got away. This whole case is an aberration. Next time. All right, right, so we just pulled in to the Shawshank prison. Mm -hmm. Lester Eubanks finds himself in one of America's most brutal prison systems, the one that served as the set for the movie Shawshank Redemption. I believe in two things, discipline and the Bible. Here you'll receive both. The state prison looks familiar to just about anyone who's seen one of the most rebroadcast movies of all time. Welcome to Shawshank. We've compiled photos of Lester Eubanks, including an age progression sketch showing what the U.S. Marshals believe he may look like today on abcnews.com slash this man. You can also find a lot of additional content on the case there, and we'll be updating the page as news warrants. If you have seen Lester Eubanks or have any information about his whereabouts, you can provide your tip directly to the U.S. Marshals at 1-866-4-WANTED. That's 1-866-4926833. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating and a review. Have You Seen This Man is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio. Written and reported by senior investigative producer Matthew Mosk. Additional reporting by producer Alex Hosenball and associate producer Jin Sol Jung. Production by Susie Liu. Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, and Stacia Deshishku. Cindy Galley is our chief of investigative projects. Chris Vlasto is senior executive producer. I'm Sunny Hostin.